The Dry is an eight-part drama series. Begins with a double bill this Wednesday evening on RTE One. It stars Roisin Gallagher as Shiv Sheridan, a 35-year-old Dubliner who's returning to Dublin after uh, uh, years of partying in London. Now sober for five months, 17 days and six hours. She is full of good intentions, but being back with her dysfunctional family makes staying on the dry harder to navigate than Shiv had expected. The award-winning playwright and screenwriter Nancy Harris and acclaimed director Paddy Bratnock are the team behind this comedy drama and I'm delighted to be joined by Nancy from her home in London and Paddy is with, with me in studio here in Dublin. I, I, I'd start with you, Nancy. Um, and and the, okay. wh- Where did it start out for you, this? Was it one or other of the characters, uh, and I'm thinking, I suppose, particularly of Shiv, um, the character played by Roshan Gallagher, who kind of is our guide, certainly in the early episodes? Um... The idea started actually not with really a character, more of the, it was more the theme, actually, mm. um, in that I felt like, well, I'm from a family where there is a lot of addiction and luckily a lot of sobriety in my immediate and extended family. And I felt like this was something I had never seen examined in a kind of a holistic context of of family because the one thing you kind of know when you're in a family with um things like alcoholism is that everybody is affected and not necessarily directly and so i thought it would be a really interesting way to actually look at a family dynamic and so it was the family that was the beginning point and then um the idea of somebody in recovery what what i was really interested in was the idea of somebody trying to change and how hard mm. that is in a family context. And given that you're, you're saying that there was a certain amount of this in your own background, Nancy, you know mm. more than uh, most then, and, and as anybody in that situation will know, there's nothing funny about addiction at all when you're on uh, the receiving end of it as a family member or indeed anybody close to you. And yet you've managed in this series to bring something as serious as, in this case, alcohol addiction, and it moves to other areas later in the series as well, and give us a laugh as we're going along. How difficult was that balance to strike? Well, I think, I mean, I think all, I, I, you know, there's a gallows humour in most families. No matter how dark things get, we just have to find the light. And I think even with a subject that is very serious, like addiction and even family and, and the show deals with other things like mm. loss and grief. Um, I think we always find the humour. And, uh, you know, in my own family, you know, one of the interesting things is there's quite a few sober people and none of them can agree on the right way to get sober. Some people think, the, you know, it's the recovery route is the only route. And other members, like, you just give up the drink, you take the problem out. The problem is the drink, you give it up. There's no need to go to a room and talk about yourself. And there's all these different permutations. And, you know, my grandparents were Catholic, very conservative, huge drinkers. And their children were all divorced, non-religious. A lot of them went into recovery. So there's a lot of tension and there's a lot of humour in those Mm. kind of ideas that we have about what the right way to do, what the right way even to be an alcoholic is. And I felt like all of those things kind of were spoke to Irish society and spoke to us all and could be funny and sad and truthful. And I guess Paddy Brahnock sitting in front of me here, did you see that from the outset when you read Nancy's script? Oh, yeah. And and I think, and also having those early conversations I had with Nancy, you know, and and we talked a bit about, even like if it wasn't about um, alcohol, it, it, that what's beyond that in, in the family and in the situation. And I think Nancy said it there, is, if somebody changes, everybody else has to change as well or is challenged to mm. change. 
And uh, so when Shiv comes back, um, she's kind of, you know, she has a reputation of being trouble and she arrives back into the family and it's like a hurricane coming in, in a way. Um, There's an aspect to her, but yet I suppose one of the other things that Nancy talked a lot about at the beginning and, and I found very interesting and I saw the comedy potential in it was that Shiv is... Um, as a recovering alcoholic, is maybe more able to talk the talk than walk the walk. And that created, uh, I think, great space for comedy in it. Yeah, and I'm going to play a clip, actually, that gives us a sense of, of a lot of that dynamic, in fact. And it's it's when Shiv arrives back at the family home, Shiv played by Roshan Gallagher, as both Nancy and Paddy have been telling us. She, she was waiting at the airport to be picked up, but nobody arrived. And she's coming home for her grandmother's funeral. And she's greeted very nervously by her father and mother, played by Kieran Hines and Palm Boyd, respectively. Her sister Caroline is also in this, uh, played by Siobhan Cullen. A little bit of language just towards the end of the clip. But here is Shiv, uh, played by Russian Gallagher, arriving in the door of home. Oh, I'm so sorry. I completely forgot. Cheers. Ah, Shiv. Dad. Sweetheart. Did you just get in? Caroline forgot to collect me. Well, oh, oh, no. I was doing everything else. What happened here? Oh, just a little fall. Caroline fixed me up. You've lost weight. No, I haven't. You have, hasn't she, Bernie? You look great. And your skin. Gorgeous. Miss off. No, it's suiting you, this uh, new uh, lifestyle. Isn't it, Bernie? How long has it been? Five months, 17 days and six hours. Wow. No, that is... Um... Very promising. She in there? She wanted to be waked. I was thinking, if it's okay, I'd, uh, I'd like to say something at the funeral. About what? Granny. Oh, I don't think there'd be any need for that. Do you think there'd be any need for that, Tom? Uh, no, God, no. I'm not going to be embarrassing. She's been really good to me these last few months, you know? Your support. Of course, yeah. And we're here to support you too this weekend. Aren't we, Tom? Absolutely, yeah. Very much here too. Uh... Right, um, we're going to go to the shops. For what? Food. You don't have any. I'm off gluten and dairy too. Oh, for fuck's sake. What? Why don't you go with them and get what you need? I haven't seen Granny yet. Well... It's not like she's going anywhere, is it? We'll be in the car. She's grieving. There we go. Um, from the opening episode of The Dry, you heard uh, Russian Gallagher as Shiv, Kieran Hines and Palm Boyd as her father and mother, and uh, Siobhan Cullen as Caroline, her rather impatient sister, it has to be said. But I was saying to Paddy in studio here, Nancy, as we were listening to that, there's so much that isn't mm-hmm. said in the midst of that or where it's just hinted at. I know there's no need for you to be saying anything at the funeral now. Uh, and, and um, oh, oh did, were we supposed to go and collect you? And then the, the sister is in there as well talking about, well, I've been doing yeah. everything. You, you, you managed to pack a lot into those little moments of dialogue. Yeah, I mean, it's well, that's always the challenge, isn't it? Setting up, you know, you want to introduce every character quickly so that we know who they are. And and also show family dynamics that Shiv is the kind of, as Paddy just said, the ticking time bomb in the family. But the other people that may not actually 
while while she is the kind of the troublemaker, if you like, mm. she's also got the attention. And I think there's something interesting in the dynamic as being the older sister doing everything, not getting the attention. I was just sort of interested in all of those things that go on in families. And so I felt these were good opportunities to to look at them. Yeah, and, and the character of, of Caroline as played by Siobhan Cullen. Caroline is, is highly successful, at least we think in the opening episodes, that she's a highly successful um, medical professional. And, and neither her brother, uh, the, the other one of the other characters that there are indeed Shiv, neither of them have managed to come anywhere near the perfect girl. No, because I think the, the the thing about families are everybody occupies a space. And this goes back to what we were saying when we were trying to conceive the show and thinking about it beyond alcoholism mm. into the change. Like Shiv, you know, each person has a role. Shiv might be the troublemaker, but Caroline's the perfectionist. Aunt is a bit lost because and when somebody comes back and says, right, I'm changing my role. I'm not going to be the troublemaker anymore. I'm going to be good. What does that do to everybody else yeah. in a family? And that was part of the part of what the show kind of is looking at from different angles. And a, a wonderful cast that you assembled for this, uh, Paddy, not least of whom the, the last voice we heard in that clip, Kieran Hines, as ah, she's grieving there Ooh. to try to kind of calm, calm the waters. I guess getting him Oscar nominated, of course, um, on the back of Belfast, it must have been around that time that you engaged him, in fact, was it? That you got him yeah, on board? Yeah, probably was a little bit before he, the Oscar nomination, <laughs> I think. Um I mean, I, uh, I'd met Kieran before a couple of times and we sent him the script, had a phone call with him and he responded very well to the material and he really liked it, you know. Um, so uh, it, I didn't have to put him in a headlock, I don't think, you know, <laughs> he was kind of great. And I think he's I think he makes his mind up about who who am I going to work with? Um, what's the project? You know, and he's very clear about that. It's not um uh, he's not a breadhead, or, um, and luckily, because I don't, um, we didn't have a big budget. Um, so I, th- I think he saw the quality in 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 the piece and responded to that. You know? And it it was shot um, uh, during the pandemic. Uh, Nancy, did you get it? Could you travel over at that? Were you were you in at home in London at the time? Could you travel over? Were you on set for part of it? I was on set a couple of times, not not a huge amount because of the pandemic, which was why I feel just so lucky to be working with Paddy because we kind of forged a very close collaborative relationship basically on Zoom uh, in the nine months preceding, which in one way probably was a huge help to the to the show because we, we had to be so rigorous together um, before because because we didn't we didn't the conditions were very strict with COVID even even. I think in rehearsals and things, Paddy, I don't like it just felt like there was we had to just be really across everything uh, in order mm. for it to go kind of go smoothly. Um, so so I got there a couple of times. I got to meet the cast and that was really special um, before they started filming. And then I made it to set, but I didn't get there. It wasn't loads. Yeah. Go ahead, Paddy. I think, yeah, I I think you kind of. A lot of it, I think, you make in in prep and in the time before prep. And we'd had some great, really good conversations um, between the pair of us, but also with Emma and Michael, who were the producers on it, you know. And I think there was a sort of rigour about those conversations, but also they were fun. So, yeah. And as a director, you know, obviously you have your own take on it and what you want to do with it. But equally, I want to, you know... um, sort of have Nancy's voice that I take on and uh, um, absorb and bring it onto the set as well. So if those conversations happen in a really good way, it kind of, you're you're sort of ready to hit the ground running. And 
so so the prep was great on it actually we did really good work in that time yeah and your, your work as a, as a producer on this as well Nancy was that important to be kind of on that side of the fence for you as well as being uh, on the writing side of the fence it was good in terms of it was it allowed me to kind of be um, involved in, you know, things like, you know, when the casting and then the edit mm. process, probably more than anything. But I suppose because there's only me as a writer, I mean, you know, it was such a because uh, this project had a long gen genesis. It took a long time for us to get it made. And so it's very hard to hand something over when you've had it for a really long time. And so, okay. you you know, it's it's really important that those collaborative relationships with the producers, with Paddy and then with the brilliant cast were just really good because I think it just makes it all much easier. And is it is it a very different process? I mean, Paddy speaking, and you're agreeing with him to a large extent, I think, there, Nancy, about this, the, the preparatory period being so important. Is that very different from the experience of, of working on theatre, which you have done extensively as well with directors like uh, Gary Hines, obviously, and, and Selena Cartmel in, in The Gate? Is it a very different kind of collaborative process in that respect? Um, is it different? It's it's a bit different in that you have to respond to it. There's a more, it feels a bit more malleable in that um, we can make changes like in the conversations that Paddy and I had, ideas would emerge. So I would say that, say, I would have the whole structure and the character Mm. arcs and everything. But once that's there, within that, Paddy and I could be having conversations and we'd come up with something that could be a great set piece moment or a moment for a character. So And those things come out of our conversations, whereas generally in a play, as far as I've gone, mostly I have written the play, and even though I might have director notes, mm. it would be a little bit, little bit different. Yeah, um, and, that's um, probably the easiest. Yeah, yeah and uh, the, the malleability that you're talking about, Paddy. As we were listening to the clip earlier on, and Pom Boyd, uh, you were you were saying to me, she uh, when well, isn't a chev, shiv that says because she has an injury on her arm, and she says, "What what's all this about?" Yeah. Well, no, she she had it. She before we shot, um, Palm had an accident and she fell and she hurt her arm. So we wrote it, or Nancy wrote it into the script, and actually it features in quite a nice way in a few scenes. It delivers something, mm-hmm. and I think that's maybe just that sort of, you know, that's one of the the nice things about it when you can react to situations and play with them a little bit. And Nancy was great in relation to that and very open for. for for that and sort of and we had fun talking about all those things as well yeah and, and it moves into um uh, alcohol addiction is very much there in the in the early episodes i think drug addiction is probably not too far away either in the case of the the, the brother possibly but uh in, then we have the sex addiction um and kieran hines has been more than open about this speaking publicly about the fact that he's having an adulterous affair with a character who's played by his real life wife, which which brings an added kind of, I don't know, uh, dynamic to that particular yeah. uh, relationship. Were you aware of that? Did did you did you adjust things in any way, Nancy, when you realised that Kieran would be playing opposite his wife? No, actually, we didn't. Um, I don't think we did, did we, Paddy? We no. we we just thought she was brilliant. She yeah. was great in in the part, and she really went for it and I think she's excellent in the series and we um I think we wrote uh, once we ha- once we ca- once Paddy had Castellan I think we I, I did write a bit more of a scene for her yeah. later because yeah. it was lovely to see them together um and those were the kind of ways that you can respond yeah. you yeah. know in television in a way that you don't so the much in theatre the two of them are uh Kieran and Helene like Helene Patero I was going to yeah. say we should say her name yeah he, 
they're so full of divilment as a couple. <laughs> they're great, you know. Um, so when it came to the scenes that they had to do, there was, you know, there was great fun in them all the time. So it was, br- and, you know. and also I know Kieran was and Brendan O'Connor were laughing about this on Saturday. Um, you had an intimacy coordinator yes. for the two of them in particular. How, yeah. how did that work? Well, it's it's you have to have an intimacy co- coordinator now, and I did. I don't know whether they applied for a, a for a dispensation or not, but they were happy to work with her. But we we had a brilliant intimacy coordinator, um, Sue, Sue Methan, yeah. yeah, and she. I hadn't worked with one before, and I I kind of was a little bit nervous because you know you're ceding some sort of control, and you know, and it's been in the early days of it. It was talked about as a. Oh, and it felt a little bit of policing in a way. So that makes you nervous about it. And I, I couldn't have been happier in the way that it worked out. Sue brought so many brilliant skills to it and um, enhanced the scenes in a way that I don't think I would have been able to do, you know. Um, so she, she brought huge, huge um, uh, elements to it that were fantastic. So it was it was a great experience working with her. And again, I haven't seen, I've only seen the first two episodes, Nancy, but I know that the theme of suicide comes up later on in the series. Now, that's a very, we can laugh in some ways at sex addiction. It seems like the, you can see the potential for comedy there. You can see it again, again, alcoholism, not saying any of these things aren't serious business. But suicide in particular, it's it's difficult to work out where the humour is in that. Well, I didn't feel that I had to because it was a comedy drama. So I always was very clear that it was going to walk the line between the two things. And so I think this was where I think it was, uh, you know, I wanted the writing to be really truthful and to, we never strove, you know, so in a way you've got this family that are all in in terrible pain and mm. yet there is humor there but it it didn't take from the fact that you can hit those those dark notes and um we wanted to do that really really carefully so in a way it just felt very natural that that the show could go into both directions and and sometimes um, and i think paddy beautifully directed it that way yeah, I sometimes I wonder, you know, if, if you're playing a role like that, maybe I'll give this to you, Paddy. You know, if if you if you're playing the effect of the line, I know that this is a funny line or this is a tragic line, you kind of lose it. Whereas if you just play the truth of a well-written line, the effect will be there without you acting it, as it were. It, it, uh, it t- totally. And um, I mean, I think I, I always, I suppose what you want to do is set a sort of bandwidth of the tone where things can happen, mm. you know, so that can contain both the comedy and the drama. And once you set that and you have those early conversations with the cast, they understand that. And then you it's just little modulations after that yeah. to keep it within that space. I think the other thing um, that I, and I know Nancy, we talked a lot about this earlier on. The danger is if you start trying too hard, if you start pushing a gag too hard, um, it just it, it mm. kind of reeks of neediness or something like that, you know, and and that's not funny anymore, you know. So I think that was another big, you know, just let's say a, a yardstick that I judge things by, you know, don't don't try too hard. Where are we at, Nancy, with a potential? I know we have to see the first season yet. Where are we at with a potential season two? Well, if um, I'm not, I don't know what we're allowed to say or not say, but it would be. There's it, talks it looks, about talks. There's talks, and they're very there's positive. Talks about talk. Yeah, and you know, um, I think there's plenty of scope 
let's say. Would, 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 you, <laughs> have, would you have plenty of files on your computer that would be ready if the talks about talks became just talks even? I'm, I might, I might, you know, we have to let it go out there. But yeah, I might do. Fair enough. Um, I think that's a kind of a yes. Uh, it's a very familiar, uh, that's the type of way you'd answer your brother or sister if they asked you that question, I think. And, and uh, <laughs> Paddy, um, uh, obviously uh, the awards season, we're all watching it at the moment. And how you were so close, I think, in, in, in terms of the the Best International Picture nomination in, in 2015 for Viva, your yeah. movie with, with Marco Halloran. I'm, I'm sure there's delight, though, on your part in and around Colleen Kuhn in particular. Oh, totally, yeah. And, I mean, uh, I know Colm and he's he's a great... Colm Bered, the yeah. writer-director, yeah. Yeah, and he's he's a great guy and he did a fantastic job on the, you on had, the film. You, did you mentor him on a, on a TG Cannon oh, oh, course? A, a long, long time ago, um, sort of 2012 or something, and Dervila Walsh as well was on that too, mm. you know. And in a way, that's the great thing about those things. You know, they bear fruit at some stage because, you know, the industry here... and. You know, I think all the success at the moment is, is is so brilliant because it's the culmination of lots of work and a kind of received wisdom that's come down. To, and it's right across the board. It's not just writers and directors. It's obviously actors, um, but all the crewing and all the crafts as well. It, uh, the standard has just shot up. Um, and it's po- it's not surprising to me that things are being nominated, actually. That's the thing. Mm. I'm not surprised by them. They deserve it and they're good enough. Um, so I, I think, and I think Colin Kuhn is in with a really good shout. Um, I think people felt that in the BAFTAs and it it obviously didn't get it. But, but I, All Quiet in the Western Front was kind of, I think we all knew it was going to be a big be there, competition yeah, there. Yeah. yeah. But maybe the, I, I wonder whether the Academy voters in America might be a slightly different demographic and that might suit it as well. I don't know. Right, so well, it's fingers are crossed for I think I think fingers are crossed everywhere. Just before I let you go, Nancy, um, what about mm-hmm. plays I've, I mentioned um, about your red shoes and the beacon with uh, with Druid back in the day? Uh, did the play does the playwriting continue uh, whether season two oh, happens yeah. or not? <laughs> oh yeah, no, totally, it does. I mean, I think what's what's really lovely, and I'm so grateful to be able to be working in both mediums. Um, and yeah, but I definitely uh, the playwriting does continue. It's just finding the the time. But and, absolutely, and, and are we anything on the way, or is it just on the fi- in the files on the computer? Poss- again, possibly something on the way. More talks about to- talks. <laughs> more talks about talks. I'm so yeah, sorry. That's okay. Yeah, more talks about talks about talks. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, listen. Lovely, lovely to have spoken with you this evening, Nancy. And thanks for joining us. And Paddy Brownock here in Cheers, studio. Thanks. I thanks. see you, Nancy. Okay, Didn't say thank hello, you, but I said bye. <laughs> fair enough. Bye. That's thank fair you. enough. Maybe when those talks about that talks just continue, you might get a chance to say hello. The dry will air on RT One on Wednesday, the first of March at nine thirty-five p.m. It's a double bill. In fact, two episodes per night, and that's going to happen every Wednesday for the next four Wednesdays. The rate in total, and I think they drop it on the player. Yeah, it's well. on the player. They will all be available on the RT player from next Wednesday after after the first two. For 40 years, the artist Brian Maguire has explored the aftermath of conflict and violence in paintings going into war zones around the world, into prisons and the homes of the bereaved, bringing us up close and personal with the consequences of injustice. 
2022, he went to Brazil to the indigenous villages in the Amazon rainforest. Four monumental paintings now make up his new exhibition, The Clock Winds Down, about to open at the Carolyn Gary. Delighted that Brian is with me in studio this evening. And as usual, we tweet some images as we're, as we're talking here to, to Brian. Um, the Clock Winds Down, Brian. It, that's a fairly ominous title to an exhibition. Are, are you in pessimistic mode, mood? Well, well I... I, I I owe it perhaps the most unpessimistic man. Uh, uh, what's the, the the music hall opposite the College of Art in uh, Thomas Street? What's it called? I, I don't know. Oh, the Tivoli, the, the Tivoli Theatre. No, 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 the music hall, the place where they play. Christie was playing. Uh, uh, oh, Vicar Street, Vicar Street. Street. Yes, yeah. My brain is was working very badly, and I I was a guest, and this. This line came in one of his songs and uh, it it summed up exactly. I mean, it was about about uh, global warming, mm. but it summed up exactly what I was trying to do with these pictures, with the four pictures in, in, yeah. in relation to the Amazon. So that's where it came from. So it started, it started with Christy Moore in Vicar Street. <laughs> now, you were in Brazil in 2022 and you visited the Amazon rainforest at yes. that time. That's the direct, that's the, the lead into the, yes, the paintings into, into here. into these pictures, so yes. So what did, what did you see, what did you do while you were there? Well, we visited, we visited, we, we went to Manaus, which is the very famous city as an opera house smack in the middle of the place. Uh, and we took ships and uh, car ferries and then small boats. We 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 went. We got as far as um, we were on the Abaqueus River, which is a, a tributary of the Madeira River, which is a tributary mm. of the Amazon. Uh, we were in a place called Baxioria Madra, which is where we met the leadership of the Maragua Nation, a man called Elvardo Castro. Uh, he took us further along. Uh, we 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 went to. Um, I don't want too much about the, the specifics of. Okay, of, we of went the, to the four names. villages. Yeah, different the, villages. The, yeah. the names get very difficult yeah. for me <laughs> as it goes yeah, on. Absolutely. Yeah. But but we went to four villages where um, we we listened. We we went there essentially to listen. We knew very little. Um, one of the reasons for going there was because. For for thirty years, I've heard that this is the lung of the world, mm. and it's in danger, and it is really in danger. Uh, but I never heard about the people who live there. I never heard quotes from any of the nations that make up these 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 the population. They're very small. There's about two 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 thousand people in 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 this nation uh, now. And what sort of what sort of things were they telling you? How disturbing were the stories well, or the worries that they had? It it ranged from almost the lack of access to healthcare to murder. You know, that was the range of stuff. The the healthcare situation was appalling. You know, the, the, there was no there was no there was no dedicated taxi mm. for like a taxi ambulance on the river. So th- there was no way. There was no. If you got sick, even a, a minor yeah, illness yeah, could be hugely yeah. problematic. And and when the river is low in summertime, you had they had to carry the the people on their back that were ill for kilometers. You know, 
it really is kind of rough to think about. Now, everything was healthy and wealthy as when we were there, mm. if you know what I mean. Uh, it, it, it was... And how, in terms of... Let, let's, let's actually look at one of the paintings and we can mm. talk about maybe yeah. some of the stories then or the, 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 the anxieties that the people that you spoke to had. I'm going to tweet, tweet a picture at RTE Arena, The Burning Amazon. Yes. Um, so it, it's up there now. Um, this is a... Maybe you talk about the importance yeah. of fire in the Amazon or yeah. the, the problem of fire well, in the Amazon, first of all, Brian. 17% of the rainforest has been done away with through this means, through burning it. If they get to 25%, I'm told its capacity to function will be over. Mm. It's that close. And what we have in, in this painting uh, that, uh, that we've tweeted out, now I'm looking at it a computer, on a computer screen. Yeah. People at home may be looking at, at it on a on a phone, yeah. Um, it we have these burning colours, essentially flames. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. it's kind of an abstracted version over on the right hand side of the painting, yeah. and then black, dark, burnt out yeah. sections yeah. on the uh, in, yeah. in in the foreground of the painting. Uh, how how big a problem is fire? Well, the the, the way if you, if if you were if you were wanting to double the size of your farm, you would uh, hire the mafia to burn the forest next to you. Then the land became uh, identifiable. It became measurable. Mm. It could be measured. Once it could be measured, it can then, you can go along and register it as your land. And that's the end of it. Yeah, and, and as you say, the problem is the more of it's burnt down, the yeah. less the, the, the more the less capacity the lungs yeah. of the planet have. But um, I, I've said about these this, the painting that we've the picture that we the image that we just tweeted. It's on a phone or it's on a computer yeah. screen. The scale of these paintings is vitally important. Yeah, it it it, it had to be bigger than a person because it had to envelop you when you, when you go there. Mm. Uh, that, that was the first thing. It had to frighten you. Uh, the, I worked from I worked from a structure which I got from pictures from photographs of of, of a burning hill, but I would insert in it in the, you know when when painters paint they they bring emotion into the into yeah into it's the not structure. just a figurative representation no, of the pictures no, that you had it, it never does it never is and what size what scale are we talking about here well there? they're four they're four sixty four meters sixty by two meters ninety. So that's Those it. ones, yeah. yeah. The physicality of painting, uh, 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 making a painting like that—how how difficult is it? <laughs> it, it? If you saw the scans of my back, you'd wonder why. <laughs> but it's true; it, it's not that difficult. Uh, you use a scaffold, and, you, and when you, you talk know. about bringing emotion into it, uh, Brian, <laughs> explain how that begins to manifest itself well, and the show itself the, in the painting. I, I Mostly the emotion from the very beginning has been anger. You know, that, that mm. is the primary emotion that, that, that you bring, that I brought to painting. You know, now, I wouldn't be angry when I'm doing them. Yeah. But it would be the driving force. That's the motivating force, factor, yeah. Motivation the behind force. it. Let's, let's tweet a, a second image now called the clear-cut Amazon. Yeah. Um, again, one of the four that you're showing in the exhibition. And this, this beautiful green on either side <laughs> yeah. of literally a, 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 a yellow line yeah. driven through the middle of the forest. Like, like a nice through butter. Yeah. What, what's yeah. involved here? Well, that's what, what it is. It, 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 it's people, they come in to build a road. And with this road will come mining companies 
and it'll come become this kind of development which destroys what was there and deplaces the people, displaces the people that were there. And how aware are the you know because obviously there's there's employment and there are economic factors that are yeah. that are part of these these mining yeah. uh, works and part of the building yeah. of the road I'm sure as well. What is the attitude of the people that you spoke to regarding the balance between that economic need and the need to keep the Amazon well, rainforest intact? Their, their first desire was that the the, the, the Brazilian government has recognised that they are a nation and that, that this is their land. But it hasn't, it hasn't delineated the land. It hasn't given them title to the land. There are nine, 900,000 hectares we're talking about in this case. Uh, so that is the, the, the first demand that they have, is that they receive title to their, to their own nation. Um, the rest will follow from that. Let us finish with uh, uh, another of the paintings from the exhibition, which has a sense of, I think it's safe to say, this is pro- potentially, I would, I would say, the most optimistic of the paintings. Oh, yeah, it's yeah. simply called The Rainforest. Yeah. How imagined is this? This is a lush green... Oh, well, this, this, this is... You're, like, the, the level of beauty here is shocking. That's, I come from Bray, from, spent my childhood on Bray Head. <laughs> it's quite beautiful, but it is nothing up to the standard of this place. Uh, it's just the level of beauty would take your yeah, breath away. Even Bray doesn't compare. Is no, I'm sorry. <laughs> treacherous. <laughs> so we have four in total in this exhibition. Yeah. Are, there further, are there further paintings to come? There from? are. There, I'm making a series around, based on images of... Um, a walk in the forest is the best way to mm. put it. Which and all on the, are they all on this very large scale? No, these are these, these are much little, much more reasonable scale, a little bit smaller, <laughs> yeah. so potentially more yeah. of them. Well, yeah. listen, thanks for thanks for Thank coming you. in to Thank talk to much. us about the exhibition this evening, Brian. That's Brian McGuire. The clock winds down is at the Carolyn Gallery from the third of March through until the eighth of April. CarolynGallery.ie for full details. Just over a quarter of a century ago at the Academy Awards ceremony in March 1998, James Cameron famously declared himself King of the World. He had just won Oscars for producing, directing and editing Titanic and his picture had become the first to gross over $1 billion after that. He directed Avatar, which became the first film to earn over $2 billion and the success of the sequel means that Cameron has now written, produced and directed three of the four biggest grossing films in history. Before that, he wrote and directed The Terminator, its groundbreaking sequel, and Aliens, the sequel to the original sci-fi horror classic to discuss those films and Cameron's other works. I'm joined this evening by Stephen Benedict. Let's begin, however, with Cameron himself. First of all, talking about Titanic and then some reminders of his other achievements. Ultimately, it's an experience. It's an emotional experience. To use one of my favorite films as as a teenager, uh, David Lean's film, Dr. Zhivago, it's not really about the Russian Revolution. It's really about these people in this event that's greater than them. You borrow energy from the chosen setting. And in some way, I think that energy is returned as well because by being subjectively involved through this love story, I think you have a more emotional appreciation of the event itself. You must promise me. 
that you won't give up. No matter what happens. I came across time for you, Sarah. I love you. I always have. Three billion human lives ended on August 29th, 1997. The survivors of the nuclear fire called the war Judgment Day. They lived only to face a new nightmare, the war against the machines. Come with me if you want to live. Ripley, I'm scared. Me too. No! No, she has a strong heart. She wants to live. Come on, please. Come on, baby. God damn, you never backed away from anything in your life. Now fight! Fight! Hi, drama indeed. First of all, we heard James Cameron giving us some insight into what grounds so much of his work. And then we heard clips from Titanic, The Terminator, Aliens, The Abyss and Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Uh, Stephen Bennett, as I said, with me in studio this evening to have a look at the, the success of James Cameron. The first Avatar and now the sequel... They all have their critics. There's no doubt about that. Uh, no, they see, do. They uh, do. Even Titanic, I know, has some critics <laughs> yeah. in there as well. But yeah. they all broke box office records. So yeah. he's doing something right. And there have critics who also praise them. It, he, he does get both sets. Yeah, there are some critics who don't like him. And I think one mm. of the reasons for that is despite the huge spectacles, the scale of his stories, mm. um, there isn't that much depth. That's what a lot of critics say. There isn't a lot of, much, a lot of depth. And the thing is, what well, part of that depth is it's lacking irony. And critics love irony because it allows for nuanced interpretation. Critics like to interpret the movie. Cameron isn't about nuanced interpretation. He's about clear emotion. And he said it there in the piece. It's about emotional energy. And critics also criticise the films for the psychologically, the thin psychological characterization that he has and the cardboard cutout characters. Mm. But for me, criticising Cameron for the psychologically thin characters is like criticising someone like Ingmar Bergman or Andrzej Tarkovsky because they can't shoot an action sequence. That's not what they're about. Okay, it's like criticising Chuchili Bartoli because he doesn't, she doesn't do hip-hop or blasting Beyoncé because she doesn't do what Beethoven did. Yeah. Uh, what Cameron does is emotional clarity. And you consider the clips there, you know, very, very great lines. Um, you know, the, the piece from, from uh, Titanic, uh, you know, um, don't give up. And the thing is, those, those work because what really what Cameron is about is he's, he times the emotion to perfection. And he has what I call an emotional metronome. Okay, Cameron builds his scripts to deliver these emotions to re- arrive at precisely the right time. We've got to understand the script is not about dialogue. There's much yeah, more to a script than the dialogue. On, it's yeah. about emotional construction. He's like Spielberg because he makes he doesn't make motion pictures. Emotion pictures is what he makes. Right. Okay. And, and he mentioned that about Doctor Zhivago about exactly. the emotional journey when he was giving us his own kind of I suppose uh, ideas around film. Now you mentioned and mentioned Steven Spielberg there as a comparison. Uh, very different backgrounds. Now you, you would have yeah, to say, yeah, but they very. do share some unexpected spe- uh, similarities. We spoke about this quite recently regarding Spielberg. Spielberg's mother yeah. was a concert pianist. His father was an electrical engineer. Let's listen to a clip here of James Cameron talking about the influence of his parents on him and on his decision to become a filmmaker. My mother was an artist, an amateur artist. My father was an electrical engineer. So right there you have a collision of you know, left and right hemisphere <laughs> uh, thinking. Um, and I, I think I got sort of equal parts of, of both. My mother was definitely an influence in giving me a respect for art and the arts, especially the visual arts. We subsequently moved at the age of 17 from Canada, thousands of miles to Los Angeles. And yet at that point, I said, well, you know, who am I to say that I could be a filmmaker? 
Um, so I abandoned it for grown-up things, and I decided to be a scientist. I majored in physics. Uh, I hit a kind of a wall with, with the maths. Uh, I would say I was 25 or 26 before I really settled in and said, this is it, this is the decision, I'm gonna work in film. My father was completely unsupportive in any way, shape, or form, and was really sort of just sharpening his knives, waiting for me to fail so that he could say, aha, I was right, you should have gone into engineering. And I actually think that it made me angry enough that I had to succeed. Wow, James Cameron, there, there's, a, there's a lot of seething anger there <laughs> and resentment with the father. Yeah. But as you said, Stephen Bendick, that, you, that comparison with Spielberg, it's, it's uncanny. engineer on the, on the father's, or science on the father's yeah. side, arts on the mother's side. That's right. It's really, really uncanny. You know, but the thing is that we've got to not lose sight of the fact here that when all the CGI and all the technology that Cameron mm. develops, helps develop for his films and loads into his movies, the biggest special effect that any film can ever deliver is emotion, okay? And this is what I'm saying about his emotional metronome. Um, Cameron always uses the, the special effects to build up to that particular delivery of a particular yeah, So it's line. not just about showing off and, no. and the, the great effects that can be achieved. In fact, um, Richie Benham, who, was, who won the Oscar for Avatar and who's and we'll up for the Oscar again. for the second one we were speaking to him, um, will be broadcasting the interview on Friday evening. So it'd be interesting to hear yeah. uh, how he sees that use of, of, of emotion and technology. But yeah. you, you would say that the technology is serving the emotion rather Completely. than just In showing actual off. Fact, Cameron has such vision that the technology doesn't exist to meet it and he has to get developers and programmers to design it to meet his vision. And the thing that we've always, always got to understand is it's emotion that drives it. And, um, you know, for me, his best scene that he's ever directed is, comes from The Abyss. We heard a very, very mm. slight clip of it there where he says, you've never backed away from anything in your life, now fight. Now, Ed Harris is trying to resuscitate his dead wife. And there isn't one special effect in that sequence. It's just two actors. And what, what Cameron does is he uses, as I said, he uses the special effects to build up to those moments mm. of the lines. And that's what I mean by emotional metronome. It's all about the cadence of it. And he didn't go to film school. Again, your, your career is in there. Your job is in trouble here, Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I might as well pack it up and go home. Yeah, this is the amazing thing about, about James Cameron. He is self-taught. Mm. He took a jog as a truck driver. Um, so he could then spend the weekends in University of Southern California in the library reading up about films. And he read and he photocopied all the books <laughs> on cameras, film cameras, special yeah. effects and sound effects. And then he went off to his living room and he made a short film and it's called Xenogenesis. It's 11 mm. minutes long and it has the theme there about humans versus machines. But I think that's not really his real theme about humans versus machines. People say that it runs all the way through his work. I think his real theme, Sean, is the creative instinct versus the destructive impulse. Okay, his films are often in, films <coughs> often involve his, his films often involve the military, but his lead characters are not military characters. Instead, they are civilians who adopt the military hardware to protect human life, never to destroy it. If you think of James, Sarah Connor in The Terminator and Ellen Ripley in Aliens, which I think is his greatest picture ever. Uh, I know I'm making up a word here, yeah. but it's civilitary. It's the union of both, okay? And so the military is populated by civilians to fight for the defence of our civilization, And that's what makes this film so elemental. It's life and death all the time. But what about Avatar 2, The Way of Water? Um, still in, in some cinemas around the place. And as I said, we'll be speaking to, to Richie Bainham about the visual effects yeah. and, and his work on those uh, for this second of the Avatar films. Mm. 
is Cameron, you know, when you particularly when you get a sequel, uh, do you kind of become a version of yourself? Do you start imitating yourself? Yeah, I think this is the problem that I had with Avatar is that for the first time I found him imitating himself, imitating old sequences that he'd done in previous pictures, yeah. which is a disappointment because he made the Terminator. And the beautiful thing about the Terminator is with as the story progresses and as the motions intensify, the special effects became better and better and better. In Avatar with all respect to the phenomenal talent that made the films, the special effects that you see in the first frame are just as good as they are in the last frame. There's no, um, it's like there's no crescendo moving up the Ava- moving up Everest in the film. And that, for the first time ever, I think he missed his emotional metronome. And talking about um, Avatar to The Way of Water, they say that there are sequels already on the way. There's a lot more water in that tank. You were not too happy about that. And for the first time, no, I was disappointed in what he did. The thing about, we've got to understand about great art is that the feeling leads us towards the meaning. And that's what Cameron understands. If you don't feel it, you're not going to think about it. So it's always about the emotion for Cameron. And that's why I think a lot of critics dismiss him because they're saying it's emotionally shallow. But I think they're really, really elemental pictures that he does. Which picture then would you send us to? Uh, aliens. 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 As the aliens. one that brings everything it's together. Fanta- oh, it's fantastic. I mean, that. Great line that delivered. Everybody remembers the line that uh, Ellen Ripley delivers. But for me, the line of the movie is the little girl, when she's saved by Ripley, she says, I knew you would come. That reduces me to tears every time I see it. There you go. That's Stephen Benedict taking a look at the career of film director James Cameron.